Welcome to Election Profit Makers, your guide for uh, winning and losing money on estate sales and used records. My name is Kid Midas, the original mansion lurker, and I'm joined on the line by my old friend, Long John Silver. John? Hey, David. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. We have much, much to discuss, my friend. This is not going to be a regular episode. We're not going to talk about contemporary current events or our infernal predicted portfolios. This entire episode is devoted to the solution of a mystery that has bedeviled me for lo these many weeks concerning an estate sale I went to and a record that I found at said estate sale. I have devoted an inappropriate amount of time to uh, untangling this this web of intrigue, and I'm ready to present my findings to you, John, and to all of our listeners. I am so excited. So this, yeah, this started right at the beginning of the month, and then it has just progressed. Each week, we've learned a little bit more, and I thought uh, last week when you brought home some incredible stuff that that we had pretty much reached the conclusion, but that you're telling us is not the case. That is not the case. I am going to tell you for the first time the truth of the matter, why Ed Schofield was in possession of the second LP by the Australian garage rock band, The Celibate Rifles. But John, if you're up for it, why don't you present what we know so far? Okay. Well, this all began with you going to an estate sale uh, of a man named Edward Schofield, who uh, was apparently not a, an important guy, but a guy who had written a bunch of letters to Reagan, uh, offering him advice during his presidency. Lots of advice. Yeah. yeah. And you received one of his books, um, and apparently everybody received them. I guess they were giving them away as a sort of door prizes. But as you were searching, you found the celibate rifles and you wanted to find out basically why that is the case. We had a bunch of listeners uh, write in and with theory, some thought it might have been a joke. He had been given it as a joke, which you shot down. You said, no, that's not the case uh, because it doesn't match the timeline. Most of his stuff is from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. Most of his records are from the 50s and 60s. And the thing I've realized in researching all this is when it comes to history, timelines are very important. Right. I had no idea. So then uh, one of our listeners in Australia wrote in and he had discovered that Damien Lovelock, the singer of the Celibate Rifles, had a dad that had worked in um, LA for a while as a singer-songwriter. And he had a theory that maybe he had met Edward Schofield. Fellow showbiz guy. Right. So that was a pretty good theory. Then last week, you were able to discover that Ed Schofield had owned a a historic home in Brentwood, right? Designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, yep. Right, and that his name might not have been Edward Schofield, that it might have been Henry Schwartz. Correct. uh, And that he had sold the house to someone, uh, Elaine Pike, who you believe may have been his wife. Correct. Um, there are numerous other things that you discovered in there. He was the publicist for for Reagan back in the 1940s. That's what a lot of these letters were about. And then you ended last week's episode uh, with one particular letter that he had written to William Casey, who worked uh, with Reagan, went on to be the director of the CIA. And he was giving advice to William Casey about public relations and maybe starting a czar of uh, PR to take on the communists and everything. And he received a letter back saying that the, the, the material had been received, but that William Casey was traveling uh, and he would look at it when he got back. You then put two and two together based on some recent news that was published in the New York Times and that William Casey, where he was traveling, uh, he had been putting together this mastermind uh, regarding the Iranian hostages in the summer of 1980. When this letter was written, 
and that he probably couldn't use that advice from Ed Schofield. It turns out William Casey had his own ideas about the importance of spin in public relations. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was he right. was he was operating on 12-dimensional chess when it came to public relations and Schofield was old school. Right. So then I think you went back, you went through a bunch more LPs, you wanted to go through all of them and Again, you found nothing. It's just a bunch of easy listening. Uh, you said you found some businessman type records, you know, like ad- advice records, and that you wanted to go back and get all of the letters uh, and that maybe you could get some more information from that. So I think you had maybe tasked somebody to go back this past week to to get hold of those letters and see if anything could be gained from that. I didn't feel comfortable returning to the estate sale for a fourth time because I thought Mike, the guy who owned the house and was running the sale, might start to get a little suspicious uh, and take advantage of my passion and my amateur historian enthusiasm and start charging charging me too much money for the ephemera that I was interested in collecting. Right. Because you hadn't really played it cool with, with Mike. Right. You had... Um shown real enthusiasm. You'd even written him some some postcards. So he knew he had a <laughs> well, live let's, one. Well, let's not make me sound like a total maniac. I sent him one postcard. Okay. I'm no, one Edward, post- Sch- I'm no Edward Schofield. I All sent right. Him well, a well one, postcard. one postcard <laughs> is, is interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so uh, then- and, to clear, and to remind everybody, the postcard simply said, I don't know if you're still having your estate sales or what, but I would like more copies of Schofield's book, Reagan, B actor, A president. Right. And uh, and you were able to get more copies and apparently you have the manuscript now uh, and you also are in possession of some of his other uh, books that he has on numerology and spirituality and- Horoscopes and- of the United States and Cities. Okay. Great. Yeah. So then this week you apparently had another breakthrough, but you would not tell me or anyone else. You just- said you were going to save it for the pod and that's where we are right now. This is this is the self same podcast. John, are you ready? I am ready. Yes. Okay, here we go. First of all, I want to clarify something. I understand that a lot of people have been confused by the title of this book Reagan B actor a president. And it's a it's a there's a lot of typography going on in this title. So <laughs> It says Reagan and then B actor as in an actor in B movies, right? Right, right. And then it says A president as if, is this guy going to be a grade A president? So you have, to, you, have to, you have to put it all together. Reagan, the colon is assumed, then B actor, semicolon, A president, question mark? There's a, and I understand why a lot of people were like, it wasn't until I saw the book cover that I understood what the fuck you were talking about with this book. Right. So I want to clarify that. So now I need to start with a with a correction. It wouldn't be election profit makers if we didn't acknowledge our corrections, if we didn't acknowledge our errors. I had a theory that Ed Schofield lived to be 107 years old because when I entered his name into one of those sketchy personal records finding websites, it said, well, we found an Edward Schofield who is 107 years old. But those things just go on, right? I guess when so. When people die. Right. Is that right. what it is? Yes. Edward okay, Schofield sorry. did not live to be 107. And that hypothesis I now realize was insane. And it was a result of a blind spot on my part. And maybe it was a sexist blind spot, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. So well, John, see, that's the reason why people think that voter, you know, that their people are voting when they're never mind. Right. I, that out. Right. Yeah. Voter yeah, fraud's yeah. bullshit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so. It turns out, John, that about 75% of the solution to this mystery, I have already presented in our earlier episodes without realizing it. And this is going to be, we're going to repeat a little bit of what you just said. So there were two things from previous episodes, and I didn't really realize their significance, okay? One was from listener Luke's letter. As you mentioned, Luke lives in Australia, and he remembers Damien Lovelock as the lead singer of the Celibate Rifles, and as a charming uh, football commentator. So Luke did some digging about Damian Lovelock's dad, Bill. Now I'm going to play a clip of you reading Luke's letter. 
After hearing David's story about the record, I looked at Damien's Wikipedia page and then linked through to his father's page. His father, Bill Lovelock, was a songwriter who moved to the U.S. and apparently wrote some early songs for Nina Simone and worked with Burl Ives around the 50s and 1960s, I think. So, Nina Simone and Burl Ives. You need to remember that, John, okay? Okay. And then there was that little offhanded comment I made on last week's episode when I talked about how I leafed through every single LP that Ed Schofield owned looking for more indie rock records. The Celibate Rifles album was the only such record in the entire collection. He had probably every Burl Ives record ever recorded. Mm. So Burl Ives is the key. Burl Ives is the nexus around which this entire storm of mystery revolves. I knew now that we were getting close. Was there a connection between Ed Schofield and Burl Ives? Because that would put Schofield just one Kevin Bacon away from Bill Lovelock, the father of Damian Lovelock. And that's when listener Annie sent me an email, subject line, Ed Schofield, longtime friend of Burl Ives. Annie had run a search for Edward Schofield on newspapers.com, and she found an article from the LA Times from April 1959. It's like a showbiz, like a little showbiz item. Mm -hmm. It says, Ives cast as Mishner's Litig. Here's, here's the first paragraph of the piece. Leroy Prinz, the dance impresario, and Edward Schofield, lawyer, publicist, and longtime friend of Burl Ives, have incorporated as Morea Productions and acquired rights to James Mishner's short story, Lee Tig the Legend. And Burl Ives will step into the title role later this year. Edward Schofield was putting together a movie, a biopic, that was going to star Burl Ives as an artist named Ed, Edgar Leetig. Who was Edgar Leetig, John? Mm. Edgar Leetig was the father of American velvet painting. He was the guy who invented painting on black velvet. Per Wikipedia, Leetig immigrated to French Polynesia in 1933, where he spent the rest of his life painting the local life on black velvet. Okay? This movie was never made. But the article is good because it establishes a, an, a uh, zero degree connection between Schofield and Ives, right? You follow me? Yep. Okay. That's not the only article that Annie sent, though. Okay. Remember when I was summarizing the <laughs> – Schofield has this chapter in his book where he presents his life story, and then the following chapter, he presents it again as a movie pitch, right? Right, right. And in that pitch, he mentions that the movie's hero, which is Edward Schofield, had some issues with the California State Bar Association. Another one of the articles that Annie sent was from the LA Times, July 1967, lawyer found guilty in fraud case. H. Edward Schofield, 51, Hollywood attorney, accused of participating in a scheme to profit through false insurance claims, was found guilty Wednesday in Superior Court on a single misdemeanor count. Um he was eventually disbarred because of this insurance fraud. That's why he had issues with the California bar and why he stopped practicing law. And by the way, one of Schofield's co-defendants pleaded not guilty due to insanity. So there's obviously like a whole thing going on. <laughs> all this legal trouble was then confirmed by another EPM listener, Mark, who sent links to all the relevant legal documents via findlaw.com. And reviewing those documents, specifically an appellate court um, appeal... I found another amazing coincidence that I'm going to reveal at the end of the episode when I present my official findings. But now we're going to go back to this article about the fraud case. This was a great bit of info because according to that article, Schofield was 51 years old in 1967. Okay? Mm -hmm. This means that he was in his mid-60s when he was writing these letters to Ronald Reagan. And that, John, might explain one of the one of the recurring themes in these letters, which is he keeps talking about the importance of putting senior citizens back to work to help the economy. This is from a letter, February 1981, written to the Honorable President Ronald Reagan regarding untapped source of cheap labor, our senior citizens. Dear Mr. President, the biggest source of super willing cheap labor in the country can be found in our senior citizens. 
A large majority of them desire to fulfill their lives with meaningful endeavor and are willing to work for minimal wages. Some of the best deserving and experienced individuals belong to the potential workforce. So let's assume that Schofield in his mid-60s, I mean, here's the thing you have to understand about Schofield. Okay. I've read, by the way, since we last spoke, I've read this entire book. I've read every page of uh, Reagan, B actor, A president. And a recurring theme is that Edward Schofield worked his ass off his entire life. This guy would not stop grinding. Okay. You want to talk about the grind set, rise and grind, all that stuff, grinding coffee, grinding money, blah, blah, blah. This dude was like a number one grinder. So there's a chapter in his book where he kind of recounts his professional career. He came up during the Great Depression, which had a huge impact on him. Right. You know, like everybody else. Apparently, by the time he was nine years old, (laughs) he was raising mice in his basement to sell to local university labs. And after after he talks about this business he had, he mentions he could not believe that none of the other neighborhood kids like moved in on his business. Like he was like, this was such a great business idea. I couldn't believe none of the other kids tried to horn in on my territory. Right. Yeah. That, then as a teenager, he ran some kind of cosmetics repackaging business slash scam that I honestly could not really follow. And then he got to Hollywood and went into turbo mode. He worked his way up from unloading film canisters in a warehouse to like head number one hot shit publicity guy on and on. Schofield was truly a hustler. And I think the reason that he keeps talking about the importance of hiring senior citizens and folding them back into the American workforce was he lived in mortal fear of not working. He wanted to work. As as we've established, he wanted to be the new cabinet level director of communications for all of the United States. Right. Right. He had to work. In fact, in fact, remember last week you were trying to speaking of timelines, you were trying to sync up these letters relative to the to the Reagan assassination attempt. Yeah. Like when when was he writing? Was this before or after Reagan was assassinated? Oh, he he acknowledges Reagan's assassination. Attempted. <laughs> yeah, the attempted assassination. Yes. He acknowledges it in chapter 17, which is which is not a letter to Reagan, but is like a giving the context. That chapter is called Madman Assassins. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen, you want to talk about somebody's work ethic? When I saw the attempted assassination of our president, I was shocked beyond belief. Not that such things do not happen all over the world, but here was a good man I knew, respected and admired, and a president, a man of high caliber who could do so much for our country if given the opportunity. His death would have been a tragedy. I had a lot of letters being typed up for my March and April barrage. Naturally, I held them for a few weeks until he recovered. (laughs) He he was kind enough to give Reagan a few weeks to recover before yeah. before hitting him with more mi- letter missiles from his barrage. Yeah, this guy. He, this guy. Yeah, he's hardcore. Oh yeah, you think? <laughs> okay. <laughs> now back to Burl Ives. Burl Ives was the key, and I knew that that we were getting close because Annie had confirmed that Ed Schofield knew Burl Ives per the article that she sent. You're right. And then John, I read my favorite chapter in the book which is chapter 10. Let me find this real quick. Chapter 14, our disillusioned youth. Chapter 11, the inauguration. You know, he was actually invited. (laughs) He spends most of this book complaining that nobody's reading his letters. Then he gets an invitation to the inauguration, but he decides he can't attend because he was already busy with something else. Like, this guy must have been impossible. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 10 is called Christmas Party Interlude. Okay, now this is a great chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a couple different selections, okay? So just bear with me. Because in this chapter, he he solves two mysteries for us, okay? It made me realize I didn't have to do all this work like online. I could have just finished reading the, the freaking book and I would have had most of what I needed. Okay. Christmas party interlude. I had planned a couple of annual Christmas parties for my longtime friends. Each year, my endearment to these old buddies increases. More and more, I appreciated the importance of meaningful relationships, for without them, life is indeed a lonely affair. First on my invitation list were Mr. and Mrs. Eddie Roseman, whom I met while still living in San Francisco before moving to Southern California in 1939. They represented the early part of my youth when I was raised as a Jew, Eddie Schwartz. 
So he was Eddie Schwartz. He was Henry Edward Schwartz. My mother married my stepfather when I was seven. My mother was a beautiful model at I. Magnin's department store. Now, this next paragraph gets intense. At that time, I had taken a bad fall on my head from my grandmother's second-story window of her apartment where I was living. I was unconscious in a hospital for two days. My mother never left my side. She apparently decided that she had better raise me if she ever wanted to know me. Having had to travel a lot and doing fashion shows, there was little time left for me. I had been shunted around as a child. First, I lived with my grandmother, but a bronchitis condition I had from birth necessitated my being farmed out to a foster family where the climate was warmer and drier than in San Francisco. I was back with grandma again when the accident occurred. I was locked out of the apartment and slipped while trying to open the second story window. Wow. Okay. Skipping a couple paragraphs. Then there were the friends from my Warner Brothers studio days, where I first met Ronald Reagan on the sound stages. There were the standbys, Leo Guild and Jules Levine. Both are terrific, hardworking press agents. One can't beat the old drum beaters. They had more talent than the press agents of today, or so it seems to me. Jules is the best column PR man in the West. As one of the old timers, he still practices the age-old custom of supplying columnists with, quote, free items that have nothing to do with his clients. This results in a special place in the hearts of the columnists because Jules does a lot of their scratching for them. Leo is one of the nation's most successful writers. So Leo Guild, who he invited to his Christmas party, also wrote the introduction to this book, Reagan B. Actor, A. President. I had never heard of Leo Guild, so I looked him up online and found more than one article that refers to him as literally the worst pulp novelist in American literary history. He's one of those, he's kind of like um, L. Ron Hubbard. He just wrote hundreds and hundreds of pulp novels, and apparently they're all terrible. And he also wrote Hollywood books like Why Women Are Crazy for Liberace, who is obviously straight, that kind of stuff. <laughs> all right. Now, okay. skipping ahead, skipping ahead. Here's, all right. here's a very important paragraph in this chapter about the Christmas party. It's talking about provincial thinking, pervades the mass communications media, it's doing a disservice to the American people, blah, 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 blah. Then he says, meanwhile, back to the Christmas party. It was getting increasingly more cumbersome to plan these annual events. I wrote letters, made telephone calls. I kept forgetting to invite some of my cronies. There was Saul Leon, vice president of William Morris, the largest talent agency in the world. I first met him and Nate Levinson, president of William Morris in Acapulco. When Burl Ives' wife, Helen... One of my dearest friends asked me to call them at Jake Paul Getty's Pierre Marquis Hotel to see if I could help them around and have some fun. So there we go. Schofield refers to Burl Ives' wife, Helen, as, quote, one of my dearest friends. Okay, John, at this point, we basically have everything we need. And in fact, some listeners have probably already solved the mystery. At this point, all it took from me was a final click on Wikipedia to confirm a suspicion I had. And in fact, Luke, our listener in Australia and I, we solved this thing almost simultaneously on opposite sides of the planet. And Luke was able to prove it using Australian death records and gravesite photos. And as of this recording, I think Luke and I are the only two people who know the full truth. I have no idea. Okay. I don't know. I have no idea where it's going. Okay. Okay. And I should mention also that there is a third person who knows the full truth, and that is Mike from the estate sale because I went back to the estate sale this weekend and I told him. So, Did Mike did care? It. Well, I'm going to explain. I'm going okay, to exp right, yeah, right. paint a portrait of Mike. Okay. So okay. I – I kept checking all week. I was checking like Craigslist and estate and estate sales.net to see if the sale was happening again. And it looked like it wasn't happening again. So I never, I never had to activate all our sleeper agents who were willing to go to the estate sale on my behalf. But of course, because I'm a maniac, I decided to, to get on my bike and go by the house anyway, just to see what was what. And the house was open and the estate sale was happening. And so I went for my fourth visit. And I'm glad it was happening because I had one last question for Mike, who had bought the house. So I had assumed that Schofield was the last person to live in the house before Mike bought it last year. It felt to me like Ed Schofield's house because his books were everywhere. There were promotional posters for the book. There were his old typewriters that he probably typed the letters on. 
And, you know, there were all his blazers and his neckties. And of course, yeah, there were some women's clothes strewn around. But I was so fixated on Schofield, I didn't consider the possibility that somebody else could have lived in the house after he died, which is stupid of me because really, do you, how many people live to be 107 years old? Right, right. So, you know, and this is a sidebar. I realize now that I think the reason that I wanted Schofield to live to be 107 years old um, is because, as you know, John, my dad has been in the hospital off and on for the past month, and I want my dad to live to be 107 years old. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually flying home tomorrow to spend to spend time with him, and um, I'm looking forward to presenting my findings to him because I actually think he'll get a kick out of this story, even though he is one of the great Ronald Reagan haters of American history. <laughs> one of his many charms. And the only letters I ever saw him write politicians were, you know, obviously, of a, he wasn't offering advice to Richard Nixon. He was telling Nixon to go to hell for supporting the B-1 bomber and all that stuff. And we're not even getting into the letters he used to write Jesse Helms back in the day. Anyway. Right. So I'm hoping my dad will enjoy this whole story. But okay. I... I went to Mike and I, and I asked him, who was living in this house before it was put up for sale? And sure enough, it was Schofield's widow, Elaine Pike, who I mentioned in last week's episode because she had scored the best on Schofield's homegrown psychological test thing that I have a photograph of. Right. Elaine Pike was indeed married to Schofield. She was Schofield's second wife, as well, John, as his business partner and fellow searcher. As per a clipping that I found when I searched both of their names on newspapers.com, there was a special section in the LA Times in January of 1977 called Mining the Mind, where you can study and read about ESP or even help with researching it. An increasing interest in matters of extrasensory perception, ESP, on the part of the public in general and education institutions in particular has led to the development of educational groups, research activity, and a handful of publications devoted to ESP. A list of some of these groups and periodicals is provided for those of you with a desire to learn more about such matters. And under the section Educational Centers, the first listing is Foundation for Universal Understanding. A nonprofit organization founded in 1957 by Edward Schofield, PhD, psychologist, and Elaine Pike, psychological astrologer. The foundation conducts seminars and monthly lectures to, quote, help people find happiness through psychology, psychic phenomena, numerology, listen to the numbers, mm -hmm. dream analysis, and astrology. So Ed Schofield and Elaine Pike were running groups or studies or, you know, I don't know what you would call these, but they were dedicated to going to extraordinary measures to help people live their best lives, right? Mm -hmm. And this obviously, is, this explains all the numerology and horoscope books and ancient aliens books that I found in Schofield's study. So Schofield did not live to be 107. He died almost 20 years ago. But Elaine lived in the house until her death, at which point the trust, according to Mike, went to a friend who apparently had no interest in the house or its contents. So Mike just bought everything, right? It's just one of those sales where you just get the house and you get everything in the house, okay? And I will say that Ed and Elaine's friend, whoever had that trust, it worked out well for him because I checked Zillow to see the sale price of the home. Mike actually already knew a lot of what I had discovered. He knew that Schofield had been disbarred because Mike himself is an attorney and he had leafed through all of Schofield's legal documents before he destroyed them. And like he confirmed that the the alluring, smiling blonde woman in the painting in the front room was Elaine Pike. And like me, interestingly, Mike had developed a sort of admiration for Schofield, but not, not because of Schofield's dorky idealism and letter writing tenacity, but but because what Mike had learned about <laughs> what Mike had learned about I'm just going to tell you some quotes that Mike told me about Schofield. What do you learn okay. about Schofield? Okay. Quote, he was a hedonist. He lived for this world. Quote, this was a party house. Quote, he was a player. He was a pimp. And <laughs> this, this jibes with a notice that I found in the Los Angeles Times from 1947 about Schofield's divorce from his first wife. Okay. This little item is 
is <laughs> the headline is Professor's Luck in Court and Roulette Differ Widely. Henry Edward Schofield, professor, who with two other men was reported to have won $103,700 at roulette in Las Vegas in December. Remember, this is $100,000 in 1947 money. Yeah. Yesterday was divorced by his wife, Geneva Elizabeth. With her attorney, J. Thomas Russell, Mrs. Schofield appeared before Superior Court Judge Ingle W. Bull and testified that her husband of one month had told her that she was stupid and, quote, not up to his standards. He often came home at three and four in the morning with lipstick on his shirts, she said. Now, this is not painting a, a flattering portrait of, of my personal hero, Edward Schofield, but I, I, this must be the same short-lived marriage that Schofield refers to. In his, there's one point in his book when he says, yeah, and then I was married to the daughter of a studio head for a month. And then he says that marriage was, quote, weird and wild. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK. Anyway, after he after he told me about Schofield being such a player and everything, Mike then said, quote, I'm going to make this house amazing, quote, I'm going to be the prince of Hollywood. OK, that's what Mike said. Yeah. Mike wants to rejuvenate this this house and make it once again, I guess, like a social hub for Hollywood players. So he's not going to flip it. No, I asked him that. And delicately, I said, are you going to live in this house or are you going to flip it? And he was like, no, I'm going to live in this house. I'm going to make this house amazing. I'm going to be the Prince of Hollywood. Okay. I think I think he has found, like me, he has found something in Schofield that speaks to him. Okay. So this is where I risked outing myself as a little bit of a dork because I said to Mike, you know, remember when I came by the first time like a month ago and I, I found this record and I told you that it made no sense. And I asked you if maybe Ed Schofield had some kids who were rock musicians. Like, do you remember that? He was like, oh, yeah, it was the album. It had like Arabic writing on it, right? And I was like, yeah, that's the one. He said, you know, after you were saying, he was like, you got so excited about that record that after you left, I wondered if I should have held on to it because I wondered if it was really valuable. And I kind of explained like, it's not worth that much money. I didn't, I mean, I didn't, get, I didn't bother explaining Discogs to Mike, but I was like, it's not that it's <laughs> worth a lot of money. It's just, it was so out of place. I, I was entranced. So then I just laid all my cards on the table and, and I, I told my, I told Mike, you know, all the steps that I had taken to figure out why that album was in this house. And Mike was like, how did you figure all this out? And I was like, I did the work, you know, like I don't have a lot going on right now. And I think he was impressed. Then he said, so what do you do for a living? And I was like, well, I, I guess I kind of work in TV. And then he got very excited. He was like, let's make a reality show about me refurbishing this house. He said, I've already spoken to someone from KTLA. I've already spoken to a producer at KTLA. We'll, we'll shoot me. We'll shoot the renovation of this house. We'll shoot me turning it back into a huge party house. And then... <laughs> And then he said the kind of thing that I love it when people say, he was like, we'll both make money. <laughs> I was like, okay. He said, I'm going to work with the first producer who says yes, right? That's, that's right. not, I don't think that's, I don't think that's classic negotiating strategy, but I kind of admired him for it. So are you going to do that? I don't, I, I don't think that's my wheelhouse, you know? Okay. He was like, may I, maybe, you know, I think he was trying to reach the, um, the property brothers. I think he mentioned the property brothers. Do you okay. know those guys? They're like yeah, identical yeah. twins and they flip houses and stuff like that. That's right. So, yeah. Right. That, that should be, is he going to come on the podcast? Did you I, tell him about the podcast? No, 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 no. Okay. No. Right. I, he would have clammed like, up. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Play your cards close, John. Don't admit right. that you'll work with the first producer who says yet. You got to be right. a little. And don't admit that you're a podcaster. Right. Never ever admit that you're a podcaster. That's the first rule of podcasting. Okay. So now it's time for me to reveal the findings, the whole story. But before I do that, I want to just say a couple, some final thoughts about Edward Schofield. I, you know, I can't just dismiss him as a crank, right? Someone, someone who just wrote to Ronald Reagan and then got frustrated because Reagan and nobody was getting back to him. I mean, there's definitely an element of that. And now that I have finished the book, I think one thing that's interesting about this book, which as I mentioned, is basically his correspondence over the course of one year. The letters do get darker over the course of the book. Like he does start to mention more and more often that no one is responding to his letters. No one is taking his advice. And he does start sending more and more letters that are just about the fact 
that no one is reading his letters. And when Reagan's head of communications, who I guess is someone that Schofield knew, when that guy left to go work for standard PR again, like he he left the Reagan's office, that's when Schofield like gets really despairing. He's like, well, now my my one connection is gone. Now what do I do? He right. starts writing to Elizabeth Dole, who I guess was Reagan's secretary. I didn't know that. And he's basically like, listen, you don't know who I am, but I know Ronald Reagan. I used to work with him and I have sent him so many ideas and I really think time is running out. Like you need to start using my ideas. Listen to what he says. From my vantage point, I simply cannot understand anyone reading the contents of this letter and not doing something about it. It contains so many valid concepts in such vital areas that are tearing our country apart. Unless these other valid ideas found in the rest of my communiques are acted upon, our country will continue to slide downhill. I have no idea whether or not this letter or the others will ever cross your busy desk. If they do not, those who read them and decide not to bring them to your attention are taking a very heavy responsibility upon their shoulders. <laughs> so his, his, his anxiety about people not listening to him is getting, is getting more... Um, more pronounced. And also his ideas start to get a little darker. Or maybe the more I learned about him, I realized his ideas are getting a little darker. Like, remember when I said that he was really opposed to Reagan's proposed constitutional amendment outlawing abortion? Right. And part of, you know, if this is this is pure conjecture, right? If this guy really was like a player, you know, and having a lot of sex in his party house, like his one of his arguments I mean, he has the standard pro-choice arguments for abortion, but then he also says something like pregnancy ruins a woman's maidenhood, which is why women are so – like it starts to get a little Mm. dicey. And then he starts getting into some pro-sterilization stuff, which you know is a bit of a red flag, right? And you know, I had said that – I can't remember if I mentioned this in previous episodes, but he also seemed very progressive when it came to prison reform. Like these people just come from broken societies. We need to rehabilitate them, not punish them. Right. There are a lot of ideas where if Reagan had taken these ideas, like his presidency would have been better. At one point, he's like, we should share all the wealth in the world among all the nations. Then there won't be wars. Like some of this stuff is like kind of radical. Right. The prison stuff by the end of the book, he's like, we should put all the prisons on islands and let them build their own societies and fight it out. And we'll guard the islands with our military so that they can practice for when there's an actual war. Like it's getting into some sketchy stuff. And then, then near the end of the book, then, he, then there's a chapter about the trilateral commission. And that's when like my eyes glaze over and it's like, okay, I'm going to skim this chapter. Like I'm not going to give the chapter about the trilateral commission the close attention I gave the chapter about booking his Christmas party, you know? Um, and... <laughs> So why is it getting so dark here at the end? Just simply because he's being ignored or something else going on in his life? Is he is he going down a rabbit hole of drugs? My theory is he was just getting frustrated that no one was replying to him. And maybe that frustration led him to take more extreme positions or to present, quote unquote, bolder ideas, you know? Right, right. And, to you stand know, at one out. Point he, at one point, he does get a, a letter from the Justice Department that's like, OK, we got your idea about turning some islands into prison colonies. We actually tried that with Alcatraz and it was logistically just didn't work. Like it's really expensive to do that. And then they give all these other reasons why they can't turn islands into prison colonies. And then Schofield in an aside to his readers is like, well, this is utter nonsense. Like, of course you can do it where there's a will. There's a way. I mean, again, like the classic 20th century guy of like, well, let's just put our mind to it and make it happen. You'd be an idiot not to try this, all that kind of stuff. And I understand. (laughs) I mean, the book the book is only like 250 pages. He doesn't print all the letters. And I know this because when the book came out, there was an article about it. It's like a puff piece. There's an article about the book in the Desert Sun newspaper, a California desert newspaper. Because remember, Schofield spent a lot of time in Anza, California, you know, on his desert ranch. Right. According to that article, Schofield sent Reagan over the course of this year more than 2,800 pages of ideas. He really bludgeoned the shit out of Ronald Reagan with his ideas. And I imagine that after you send maybe 1,000 pages of ideas and you're not getting any feedback, you start to get a little, you know, a little concerned maybe. Then maybe after 
1,750 pages of ideas. You're like, is anybody listening to my ideas or what? And then you start to get up to like the 2,700, 2,800 pages of ideas. And you're like, come on, guys. Like, I am putting in the work. Like, I, I've been working my whole life. I was raising mice in my basement when I was nine to sell them to labs. You think I'm not putting in the work. I'm working harder than anyone in the government. Why aren't you why aren't you taking my advice? We need to save this country. Right. And again, I don't think I explained this. I don't think I explained this in last week's episode clearly enough. The reason for the book and the reason that Schofield then also wants to turn his life story into a blockbuster movie about a man who writes letters to a president who follows his advice and saves the world is be and Schofield acknowledges this throughout the book. He's like, listen, these jackasses in the White House aren't reading my letters. But if I present my ideas in a book and sell them through my foundation, all of America will have an opportunity to learn about my great ideas. And if they're not readers, when Frank Capra Jr. directs the blockbuster movie about my ideas, even more people will, will right. be exposed to my ideas. And then Reagan will have to act on my ideas because everyone in America will be clamoring for him to adopt these wonderful fucking ideas. It's so crazy. It just might work. It's that's you know what? That's Schofield in a nutshell. It's so crazy. It just might work. In the article in the Desert Sun newspaper about this book, Schofield claims that he has already sold 20,000 copies of the book, which uh, this guy's a PR guy, you know. Yeah. There's no way he sold 20,000. Right? 20,000? I can't believe that he's- Like, you couldn't sell 20,000 copies of a book in 1980. It would be like a bestseller. I think it must be like Dianetics. He probably just mailed them to people- and counted that as a sale. You know what I mean? Right. Or bought them himself, used one of his foundations to buy copies. You know how they, people always do that? But he was pretty wealthy. I think he was wealthy. Yeah, he had multiple properties and yeah. And he was he was like, not bipolar, but he clearly just had this huge amount of energy. He came up during the depression and could not stop working. Right. I think I think right. he's one of those guys where if you stop working, what is the point of life, you know? Right. Yeah. And he was an only kid. He never mentions any siblings, correct? Right. Yeah. An only child, absent mother, and he at one point in the book he says I had a very lonely childhood. Yeah. And that was kind of poignant to read, you know. Yeah. I think he had to keep himself occupied, definitely. Yeah. Right, it which sound, would probably yeah. explain a lot. Traumatic sort of beginning to like. And there are moments reading this book where you're like, did that really happen? Like, let's go back to that roulette thing. He claims that in, when was it? 1947, he and his friends went to Las Vegas and had a foolproof system and won over 100 grand at a roulette table. Right. There was another notice that I didn't mention, which is that they, are gonna turn, they were going to turn that into a movie because they were going to make a movie about this amazing system they had to win at roulette where they made $100,000 on, on the roulette table. During the divorce proceedings, his first wife had access to his finances. She was entitled to half of everything. And there was no sort of that type of money in his bank accounts. Uh, there was no roulette winnings. However, he did offer her in the divorce 50% of the proceeds of any movie that he made about his amazing night at the roulette table. So it's like this guy, you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt. Although this guy had like 17 foundations and he would be the type of person that could hide that money maybe. Yeah, that's true. He might. Right. And in fact, that's probably why he sold. I assume I assume he sold the Frank Lloyd Wright house to Elaine Pike for some kind of reason like that. Right. Moving money around. Right. Right. Putting the house in his in his wife's name or something like that. that's the kind of stuff yeah. that, that's above my pay grade. Like I've never even I've literally never played roulette. So I shouldn't. And I've never owned a Frank Lloyd Wright house. So I should not speak to this because it's beyond my it's beyond my expertise. So I don't know if he sold 20,000 copies of Reagan B actor A president. My gut tells me he didn't. And my gut tells me something else, John. My gut tells my gut tells me and maybe this is me being an egomaniac, but my gut okay. tells me that other other than Edward Schofield, I am the only person who has ever read this book. Maybe that's not true. I bet that's not true. But I do, I will say that 
you are the world's number one expert on Edward Schofield at this time. I don't think there's any question about that. That might be true, but I would be, if Mike came from my throne, I would be worried because Mike knew about the sort of, let's say, sensual aspects of Edward. Like Mike, Mike seemed like a nice guy overall. He just has a very different, different sensibility than I do, which is probably why he can afford to buy mansions in Hollywood. But at one point, Mike was like, oh, yeah, he was a real player. You know, there was a book I found and it has all these women from different countries in the book and it has descriptions of the countries and descript- descriptions of the women. I think Schofield fucked all those women. He said this. That's a direct quote. He said this as a 10-year-old and the 10-year-old's mom were like rifling through like clothes and stuff. Like Mike was like, he's, he's you know, it's like no moderating there was no content warning for him talking about this book of women. And then I, and he said, I have the book if you want to see it. And I was like, no, I'm good. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, maybe that was a book of Lee Tig's black velvet paintings. Who knows? You know, there was that connection to Polynesian right. black velvet paintings of beautiful women. You know, he was called the American Gauguin, you know, like all this kind of stuff. So my, I think I think if Mike and I combined our, you know, it's like the fable of the blind men and the elephant, right? I'm feeling... The elephant's brain, his his idealism, his monomania, his work ethic. Mike is feeling the elephant's balls and penis. Yeah, talking he's his, all his about reproductive the organs, his right. sex life. Okay, the erotic life of elephants. But I will say that yes, over the course of this month, I have learned a lot um, about Edward Schofield, and I went through a lot of the snapshots and. They did not add much to my understanding of Ed Schofield. I didn't take all the correspondence in those Tupperware bins. I took a couple letters that were written from very earnest people to one or other of Schofield's foundations asking for more information. Please find enclosed a dollar and fifty cents. I do want to read your pamphlet about how numbers cure cancer or whatever. Like I don't right, like, right. You know, I don't mean to speak out of turn, but that kind of stuff. All right. Nancy Reagan isn't involved in this final answer, is she? I, that's the thing that I couldn't believe. Edward Schofield is so into alternative psychologies and stuff. And Elaine Pike, his wife, is into numerology and astrology. Why are they wasting their time writing to Ronald Reagan? They should be writing to the first lady. She had right. an astrologer on staff. Right. That would have been if the way. If he had just written to Reagan's wife instead of to Reagan, she probably would have replied to everything he, he wrote. Like, this is a great idea. Putting prisoners on islands. I'm going to consult with that White House astrologer and see what the star signs say. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. He, it's like he was like 15 degrees off target. You know what I mean? Like it all could have been so different. Yeah. Why didn't he think he of that? He could have shared the world's wealth among all the nations on earth. If only, if only Schofield <laughs> had put behind his personal connection to Reagan from Warner Brothers in the 40s and written to Nancy. Yeah. All that to say, John, as one of America's leading experts on Edward Schofield, I am now going to officially present my findings. Are you ready? I'm ready. So here we go, John. Here are my findings. Edward Schofield, born Henry Edward Schwartz, was Ronald Reagan's publicist at Warner Brothers in the 1940s. He left the PR game to become an attorney, but was eventually disbarred for insurance fraud. Part of that case was handled by Judge Joseph Wapner, who would later become famous as the star of the People's Court TV show. Schofield went on to get a PhD in psychology. He had a lifelong interest in human understanding and self-improvement. He once owned Frank Lloyd Wright's Sturgis House in Brentwood. Schofield was close friends with Helen Peck Ehrlich, who was married to the famous singer and actor Burl Ives. Ives released 99 records over 40 years, and Schofield seems to have owned every one. Schofield also, however, owned the second album by Australian garage rock band The Celibate Rifles, the so-called Five Languages album, because the band's name is printed in five different languages on the cover, French, Arabic, English, Chinese, and Spanish. Why did Ed Schofield own this album, which came out when he was almost 70 years old? Because his dear friend Helen, after divorcing Burl Ives, married one of Burl Ives' former collaborators, an Australian named Bill Lovelock. And Bill's son, Damien, was the lead singer of the Celibate Rifles. I choose to believe the record was a gift from a proud stepmother to her old friend, Ed. 
Helen Ives Lovelock died in Australia in 1990 at the age of 73. Burl Ives died in Washington State in 1995 at the age of 85. Bill Lovelock died in Australia in 2003 at the age of 81. His son Damien died 16 years later at the age of 65. Ronald Reagan died in Los Angeles in 2004 at the age of 93. Elaine Pike, astrologer and numerologist, died in LA last year. And Edward Schofield, Hollywood publicist, disgraced attorney, self-improvement enthusiast, and inveterate letter writer, died somewhere in California in 2005 at the age of 89. He had no heirs. This is from the epilogue to Schofield's book, Reagan, the actor, a president. Sometimes I curse this compulsion that forces me to leave the privacy and rarefied atmosphere of my mountaintop ranch in Anza overlooking wondrous nature, where I can breathe pure air and dream beautiful dreams of a world that ought to be, one full of hope, love, and personal fulfillment, rather than the quagmire of metropolitan areas where sinking humanity is falling deeper and deeper into despair. I say, please do not despair. Take heart with these words and join forces with me to create the world as envisioned by our creator. And below that is his signature, Edward Schofield. Case closed. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome with me the great American balladeer, Mr. Burl Ives. A little bit of fear let me down Spoiled my act as a clown I had it made up not to make a frown But a little bit of fear let me down Election Profit Makers is an independent production. We welcome your support on Patreon at patreon.com slash electionprofitmakers. Send your election prediction questions to contact at electionprofitmakers.com. If you want to advertise with us, email contact at electionprofitmakers.com. Thanks to EPM listeners Annie R., Mark C., and Luke C. for their research assistance. But a little bit of fear let me down.